following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. <laughs> but Psalm chapter 46 is where we're at. Some of us know what Psalms is, and some of us don't, and so that's why I'm here, is to kind of help you be a little bit of a guide as we look at Psalms. We do this every single time we have a fifth Sunday or a family Sunday. We pause, and we spend time in a Psalm, which breaks from our normal study. We're studying Second Thessalonians right now, so we'll be back there next week. The book of Psalms is a collection of lyrical poems that was organized into five books. So you have one big book called the book of Psalms that is organized into five what we call collections. It was originally called the Telium or praise Psalms. And in Hebrew, these lyrical poems are going to be put to music and they're going to be used in temple or corporate worship. So really what you're holding in your hands is the Old Testament hymnal of the Israelites. Psalms are written as far back uh, to the time of Moses and David, and they're written by multiple people. So you have some Psalms that are written by Moses, the great Moses, right, to uh, divide it or or, uh, saw God divide the waters and they walked across those waters on dry ground. We see the big uh, figure Moses, David. ASAP, Solomon, all of these uh, are monumental in regards to the study of Psalms. But we also realize that they were written in regards to Moses' time, but also David. So they span, or the book spans, a thousand plus years. So it wasn't written at one specific time, but as a culmination of a thousand years. Not thousands, excuse me, about a thousand years. So it's a vital book. We got the ancient hymnal of God's people But each psalm also demonstrates how to express emotion to God for any season you find ourselves in. Sometimes we think about the psalms and we think, man, I would just like to know how to talk to God when times are tough. I'd like to know how to talk to God when times are really good. That's what psalms helps us do. We gain wisdom from it. We have the opportunity to learn how to adore the Lord and give Him praise. And we realize that this is all about living a life that is continually in worship to him. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says in chapter 12, Therefore, offer yourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord, because this is your spiritual act of worship. Psalms solidifies what a spiritual act of worship looks like. Because our faith is not supposed to be compartmentalized. It's not just for Sunday morning. It's for Monday and Tuesday. We're supposed to be walking worshipers. And Psalms helps us and affirms us in our faithfulness. And it says, I want you to stay grounded on the absolute centrality of the Word of God, which is fitting for Reformation Sunday, that we stand on sola scriptura, on Scripture alone from the Lord. Now, in Psalm chapter 46, for some reason I hit Psalm 64. So let me backtrack just a little bit and go to Psalm chapter 49. Now, if you look at Psalm chapter 49, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. 
46, my fault. Uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. That could have gone south in a hurry. Uh, uh, I'm reading out of, I'm going to say again, because obviously I need to hear it, the English Standard Version of the Bible. The English Standard Version of the Bible is more a word-for-word translation. It helps us in study. Maybe you have the NIV or the New Living Translation. That's more a thought-for-thought. Regardless of what translation you have, you're going to see bold letters at the top. It says, God is our fortress, and those bold headings were not in the original text. So these are not actual words of Scripture. They're just put there to help us understand Scripture. It's like a systematic way of approaching the Bible. Underneath that, you get to the choir master. Now we're into the actual text of Scripture. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. What does that mean? Well, if you look at that and you break it down, the psalm is written to or for the choir master. The choir master is going to be the conductor. He's the chief musician. He's the one with the stick. You know what I'm talking about? When you go to a symphony, he's that guy. They didn't have sticks back then, but that's who we're talking about. And as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah are going to be Levites. Those are Old Testament priests. And they're from the family of Korah. And they're members of professional musicians at the temple. So even back in the Old Testament, we still paid people to lead worship. And so we see these are paid musicians in the Old Testament, and they are professionals. They're the A-team, if you will, okay? And by David's time, the sons of Korah served musical aspects of temple worship. So if you want to, in Psalm chapter 46, you could write above it, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 19. That's where we get this temple worship that transpires and takes place. Now, the song for Alamoth, Alamoth, if you want to circle that, the plural of that word is girl in the Hebrew. Now, ready for this? What he's saying is that refers to a high-pitched voice, falsetto or soprano. So, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 20, harps are going to be tuned to Alamoth. And what that means is they're tuned higher. They're high-pitched. So Psalm 46, all right, before we even start the text, it says, it's a worship psalm directed by a chief musician, sung by soprano voices, probably high-pitched male voices, all right, in corporate worship. The more you know, right? That's where we're at. And the whole point of the psalm is to show or to sing about how God works. This is how God works works. Let's look at the first three verses. God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, you might have missed it. There's a word there. Anybody see it? Selah. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Selah is a very key word in the Psalms. God works, first and foremost, by defending his saints. How do I become a saint? I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. I am saved, sealed, and signed, and delivered for the day of redemption. Saints are not reserved for people to achieve the status of sainthood. That's not, that's not how this works. The New Testament says, when you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are a saint, 
All right? So St. Jordan, St. Bethany. That's kind of cool. I don't recommend putting that in front of your name, but that's what God calls you. He says you're a saint. Saint is a word that talks about being set apart for a specific purpose. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are set apart to do two things, evangelize and edify, share our faith and build up the body as we see the day approaching. Now, as we do those two things, God defends us, his saints, in two ways. He provides refuge and he provides strength in any season of life we find ourselves in. Let's look at the first one. Verse 1, part A. Broke that verse into two. So if you ever see an A on the screen or a B on the screen, we're talking about first part, second part. C would mean the verse has been split up into three ways. We just do that for our study, okay? God provides refuge. The word there is massa, meaning he's a shelter from David or from danger. David declared this. Psalm chapter 14, Psalms connect to each other. Psalm chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, it's going to be on the screen for you. You don't have to go there necessarily. Says <clears throat> that the Lord, ready for this, is our refuge. He restores the fortunes of his people. Now, in the Old Testament, this was literally true. You remember when we were studying Exodus? You remember when we were talking through that beautiful book in the Old Testament law, first five books of the Bible? God provided cities of refuge for people as part of the distribution of the promised land. All the 12 tribes were supposed to designate a city of refuge, and people actually went to that city of refuge for safety when they found themselves in a storm. When a sin was committed, and when that sin was committed, they would wait in that city of refuge until that sin was avenged. Old Testament cities of refuge are a symbol to what we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Sinners can find refuge from the destroyer of our souls. Revelation chapter 9 verse 11 talks about Satan and his demons prowling around. We see that also in the New Testament text, trying to devour us. And we are protected from that through faith and trust in Christ. So just as an Old Testament person could seek refuge in an actual city, we in the New Testament flee to a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith. That's how we have a relationship with God. He is our refuge from sin and trouble. Now, Hebrews really helps us understand the Psalms. Hebrews says, We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. So not when I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I am not timid, scared. I'm not, I find my identity in that. I'm more than conqueror. I have the opportunity to face any season of life. So I run to Christ in faith to escape curse, condemnation from the Old Testament law, the wrath of God, and eternity in hell. Only faith in Christ provides refuge from these things. Now, you don't have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ? You don't have any refuge. You're running around the world without that umbrella. So there's more. So we see he's our refuge. Number two, second part of verse one. He is our strength. So God also defends his saints through his strength, not their own. David knew this. Psalm chapter 18, verse one, David declared his love For the Lord, because when he was under his refuge, he was strong. He said, it's not my power, it's God's power that has worked through me. Do hardships come? Yep. Spiritual battles, are they going to come? Yep. Temptation, is that going to come? Yep. 
Persecution, you share your faith enough? Absolutely, that's going to come too as well. But in all these things, the Bible says, especially here in the text, he is a very present help in trouble, gives us strength that we need to endure hardship and remain steadfast in our service to him. Now we jump over to 2 Corinthians, this is going to be on the screens, chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes to the corrupt Corinthians, and he says to them, this is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. You know, some of us don't like to say what we're weak in. Some of us don't like to say that we even have any weakness. You look to our spouse, and they'll be the first to tell you that you have weaknesses. Actually, as a matter of fact, since the littles are in here today, you talk to your kids, they'll tell you what your weaknesses are real fast, right? Dad, you're not good at that. (laughs) Paul says, I take pleasure in all of my weaknesses. I take pleasure in my insults, my hardships, my persecutions, my troubles, that I suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, when I pronounce my faith in Christ, I realize just how much pushback comes from that. And when pushback comes, that's when I'm the strongest. Paul affirms that when there is tension, there is growth. Now, look at verse 2. Notice the psalmist considers the most frightening, the most humbling, natural phenomenon that could ever imaginably occur on planet Earth. He says God is greater than all of that. If you look at verse 2, he says... If the mountains were to be moved into the heart of the sea, if the waters were to foam and roar, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God is still working for those who love him. We don't have to be afraid because fear robs God of his honor. Now, don't miss the word in verse 3, Selah. Everybody passes by that word, Selah's so good. Selah's such a good word. Selah means you need to pause And you need to carefully contemplate the words that were just said. Americans are really big on just, hey, just let's get content. Let's just soak it all in, right? I need content, content, content. And the psalmist says, no, you need contemplation. And so Paul says that we need to do the same thing. Charles Spurgeon actually said it like this. He said, if all of us could say Selah under the trials that we face, If all of us, when we get into a season of life, loss of a loved one, when we get into a season of life, loss of a job, troubles with kids, troubles with work, anything that we find ourselves in, if we could just pause and be like, Selah, oh, the world and our perceptions would change. Too often we speak in our haste, lay our trembling hands bewildering among the strings, strike the lyre with a rude crash, and mar the melody of our life song. In other words, what he's saying is, you make a mess of God's word, when you try to just drive or pile through. You need to stop in whatever season of life you find yourself in and sailor. Soak it in. That God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Moving along. <clears throat> All right. So basically what God's saying is, be still, trust me, I got this. All right? So that's how he works. He defends his saints. Then... Verse 4 is all about Jerusalem and his reign in Jerusalem. Now, it's a tendency for us to check out here. We're not going to do that, though, because there is New Testament connotation to all Old Testament verses. Verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, and the earth melts. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Oh, there's that word again, Selah. What's he talking about there? Well, there's two meanings to this text. When you study anything in the Bible, there's an immediate context and then there's a future context. And we want to talk about the immediate context first. The immediate context is the meaning for those individuals who were actually reading at the time of this printed psalm. This song was written around the celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from their enemies called the Assyrians in the days of King Hezekiah. So you could write on the side of your Bibles 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. You could also write Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. That's about 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Now Hezekiah, kind of a genius. Hezekiah builds an underground aqueduct that connects the springs of Gihon in Kidron with the pools of Siloam in Jerusalem to secure the city's water supply during a time of war. That war is spoken about in 2 Kings chapter 20. It's also spoken about in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Now, during King Hezekiah's reign, Jerusalem is under threat of invasion by these nasty Assyrians. And they're known, when they attack, to cut off the city's water supply. And what happens when you cut off the city's water supply is it weakens the defenses and it makes the forces surrender because they're thirsty. So, by diverting the water from the spring of Gihon outside the city walls to the pool of Siloam inside the city walls, Hezekiah ensured the city would have a secure and hidden water source, even if the external water sources were compromised or sieged. That's genius. So we say, well, so what? Well, look at this. Well, the seas roar, okay, go back into the text, and they foam. What he's saying is the Assyrians rattle their swords and spears, and the water supply in Jerusalem is still calm and secure. God is in the midst of her. In other words, what he's saying is he's reliable and Jerusalem would not be moved. He would help Jerusalem when the morning dawned, and he did. If you study the Bible, when the morning dawned, there was clear evidence that God answered Hezekiah's prayer as scattered throughout the entire Assyrian camp. There are 185,000 dead bodies that were there. So during the night, the angel of the Lord struck the Assyrians. That's 2 Kings chapter 19. Whoa. So that's the immediate context. What people are seeing there in the text is they're looking at that and they're saying, God is in the midst of us. He is working behind the scenes in ways that we couldn't even ask or imagine. Now, there's a future meaning. The psalmist also looks forward to the Lord providing a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Now, this points to the new Jerusalem. This is the new heaven and the new earth, Galatians 4, Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 13, Revelation 21. In the new Jerusalem, the Most High will dwell or make his holy habitation. Psalm 9 talks about that. Psalm 132 talks about the prophet Joel and Zechariah talk about that. Now, what's really funny is current Jerusalem, no river. There's only a few small streams, but Ezekiel and John predicted a day when a mighty river would flow from the temple itself and point to the new Jerusalem. Now watch this. This is kind of cool. Ezekiel 47, 12. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. There'll be a new crop every month. This is like a farmer's dream. (laughs) For they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be food and the leaves for healing. 
John talks about, or Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. It says, the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So when the morning comes, in other words, what he's saying is when this life is over, when God calls us home or he comes back again, he will be in the midst of his people in the new Jerusalem and nothing can stop it. Isn't that amazing to know? That God's presence will be with us, the physical presence of God in the new Jerusalem. Now notice, go over to verse 6, there's the word melts. Amos chapter 9 verse 5 partners with this passage in Psalm chapter 46 verse 6. And in Amos chapter 9 verse 5 it says, the Lord, the, the Lord of heaven's armies touches the land and it melts. God's omnipotence, which just means his unlimited power, protects Jerusalem here and in the future. Church, don't miss that. What's in the headlines right now? Jerusalem. God is for her. He protects her. And so he will continue to protect her here and in the future, regardless of how many natural disasters or unintentional or intentional wars take place. God's people look at his fulfilled promises and trust that he is powerful. Keep walking in the text. It says all God has to do is utter his voice and the earth melts. All he has to do is issue a command and the Assyrian army is defeated. Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 says Jesus is coming with a sharp, shor- sharp, sharp, sharp sword woof, that will proceed from his mouth. And he will strike down the nations, all with his word. And the whole earth will undergo this dramatic renovation. Peter says it like this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what do I do with that? Well, keep walking in the text. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts... Now, if you want to underline that, that just means the God who commands the armies of heaven, the one who is sovereign over the entire world, the God of Jacob, Israel's God, the one who keeps his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is with us. Not just Old Testament saints, but New Testament saints as well. Remember, Old Testament had saints. They were looking towards the Messiah who would come. Everybody wants to know that. How did the Old Testament people get saved? They looked forward to, in faith, the Messiah who would come. They still placed their faith and trust in Christ. They just looked forward to him. How did New Testament people get saved? They looked backwards to Christ who came. Hebrews chapter 15, or 13, verse 5 says, God will never leave his people when he is their refuge. We are overcomers because 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So to have the God of Jacob as our fortress, that means an elevated place where you cannot be attacked, is to have faith. So the call here in verses 4 through 7 is to place your trust beyond the reach of any earthly enemy. And what's the response of the people? Selah. Shut your mouth and think about that contemplate that. That's a huge word for us today, that the God of the universe defends his people and reigns in Jerusalem as well as the entire world. He is in control of your circumstance and situation. 
So what's the response? Look at verse 8. Come, there's a call, right? Come, come behold the works of the Lord. Look at what God is doing. Look at how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10 is on your living room mantles, and some of us don't even know what it means. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among all the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, there it is again. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Verse 8 and 9 is a response. A response in knowing that all these things is for the people of God to come behold the works of the Lord. Come behold his wondrous mystery. Come behold all the saving mighty deeds of God. It is the Lord alone who gives an unending supply of protection. Here, in the text, it was to a city that was saved from certain doom. And in the future, this is kind of fun when we teach littles this, by the way, when God gets to throw the devil into the lake of fire. You push him in. We realize that it is the Lord who brings peace to his people. He destroys the weapons throughout the earth. It says bows and spears and chariots, all man-made weapons. Verse 10, underline the words, be still. That is a Hebrew term that means to relax, stop, and let it go. To stop, relax, and let it go. Here's the crazy thing that happens in the New Testament. It's what Jesus does when he reclines with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's the same wording. It's the same thing. Jesus knows his death is going to come. It's going to transpire. It's going to happen. And what does he do? His season in his life has gotten completely out of control. The majority of people in the town, if not all the people in the town, are opposed to him. And Jesus is still and relaxes with his disciples and lets it go. That term, to be still, implies surrender. It is a release of hostility. In other words, attempting to fight against God is a losing plan. Those who rage against God are better off to be still by ending hostility against him and accept his truth. You have people like this in your life, right? You just look at me and you go, you should trust Christ. Your life's kind of a hot mess. You're just constantly in, in this fight with God. For believers, though, verse 10 doesn't mean that we just sit quietly around and listen to God. We don't just sit on our front porches and rock for a while, which is good. There's a time for that when you need to just be still, know that he is God, and let his words flow through your mind, and you need to contemplate some of that. But we need to be still and faithfully trust him to be a source of strength when we're submissive to his word. That's called active obedience. This is like a child who trusts a protective parent who says, don't be afraid. Remember how I kept you safe in the past? I'll do it again. That's what God's saying here. I've protected you in the past. I'll do it again. And look at that, verse 10 and 11. It says, the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob is with us. He is our fortress. That's a repeat for emphasis. It's like having to tell a kid something twice. God will... Be properly honored by all people in all places of the earth. 
And someday the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. They'll give glory to God the Father. The question on the table is, are you giving glory to God in all seasons that you find yourself in? The bigger question, are you in a relationship with God through faith in Christ? See, as believers, we find so much comfort in the steadfast presence of our Lord in life's turbulent moments. This is a call to be reminded that in times of chaos, our living hope remains our refuge and our strength. He offers a steadfast anchor for our souls. And so you're navigating challenges in this life. I get it. But as a believer, you can be assured that the Lord is with you. He has not forgotten you. He stands behind you. He stands in front of you. He stands beside you. He dwells within you through the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you the ability to stand firm. I heard about this the other day. Um, I don't know who I stole it from, so I apologize for that. But somebody said, it doesn't get easier. You just learn to manage hard better. And that's really what he's saying here is he says we can do hard as believers because with Christ he's the one who manages that we entrust that to his care so the the call is to trust and proclaim the Lord of hosts is with me the God of Jacob is my fortress let's pray for that heavenly father love psalms uh just what a great offering for us this morning to accept we look at the text and we realize that you are our refuge and our strength, the very present help in trouble. For those who are gathered here today that don't have a relationship with you through faith and trust in Christ, I pray that this would be the day of redemption. That they would confess their sin and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come into a relationship with you, just saying, God, I am a sinner and I need a great Savior. I trust Christ is that Savior. So many of us today have done that. We've trusted in Christ. And so we find ourselves sometimes afraid. We're afraid sometimes of being alone. We're afraid of sickness. We're afraid of strife, conflict, problems. We're afraid of people. We're afraid sometimes even of ourselves. We imagine the worst, the worst situations and circumstances that we possibly could imagine. And we forget that you are our refuge from those storms. And so forgive us, help us to run back to you. To realize that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Help us to realize that we can dwell in your presence the holy habitation of the Most High God, here and now. We have the opportunity to do that, to delight, as you tell us in the New Testament, in the joy of our salvation, to look in the mirror and be reminded that we are your children. And that's where our worth comes from. The world, God, will get us down, but our worth is found in Christ. And so I pray that you would fill us, help us to realize that you're with us and you're our fortress. God, help us to not pass by this Sunday just saying, yep, check, went to church. Yep, did that. Now I can get on with the rest of my life. No, Lord, help us to Selah, to think about these things, to be still and know that you are God, 
One day, every tongue will bow. Every, everyone will come to know you are the Lord. And God, we want to be men and women who exalt you among the nations. And we want to see you exalted in all of the earth. Help us to conform more to your image as we read and study your word. And we put into practice the things that we know to be true. And even as we get ready to take communion today, help us to be reminded of what a great service you have done for us on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.